John chapter 2 once again. And uh, last time we looked at the Lord's cleansing of the temple. And uh, Jesus clearly is very, I guess we'd say, upset. And I think we can say he had a righteous anger at what he found in the temple. He takes drastic action to cleanse it, not only the trafficking of money changing and the selling of animals, but also the extortion, the racketeering that went along with it. Uh, The other three Gospels record that our Lord cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry in that eventful last week before his betrayal and his crucifixion. Some um, who... uh, uh, feel that uh, John's account of this is the same event, but John records it as having occurred at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. And uh, for some people, that might be hard for them to reconcile that uh, they have a belief that the scriptures are without historical error, and I believe that's true. Uh, so how can this be? It might be hard to understand why John would use language that sounds as though it were something that occurred at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. And I think the answer is simply this. There are two cleansings. Uh, Two cleansings, one that took place at the beginning of his ministry and one that took uh, place at the end of his ministry. But as we look closer at the other gospel accounts, uh, it reveals that there is a considerable difference in these events. Uh, Different scriptures referred to. There's no mention of a, uh, a whip or the Lord makes a different claim for himself in that cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry. And on that final occasion, of course, our Lord made a great and final pronouncement in regard to the nation of Israel. Uh, He was standing there in the temple and having for the second time driven out the merchants and the money changers. He spoke these words in Matthew 23, 38 and 39. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then he went out to the Mount of Olives and from there to the upper room and to the betrayal and to the crucifixion. And he, and yet here in John's gospel, the account is a vehement action and an evident uh, anger on the part of the Lord Jesus. And it takes place at the beginning of his ministry. Now, we also notice here that John says this occurred at a Passover feast. Uh, we read that in our scripture reading this morning, doubtless uh, he wants to remind us that it, uh, at the Passover, every Jewish household spent the day before that feast uh, meticulously uh, going through their house. They were cleaning out every kind of yeast or substance that would cause fermentation. They were cleansing every um, manifestation, such manifestation in their home. Uh, that was absolutely necessary in order to have a proper celebration of the Passover. And yet in the city that had given over to the cleansing of every house, Jesus comes to the temple, the house of God, so to speak, and he found it full of clutter and noise and dirty smelling animals and money changers and merchandise. And no one seemed to be very concerned about it. But the Lord certainly was. Now, not only was he Uh, showing anger at this confusion, this clutter, this noise, this smells. But primarily he was angry at the extortion and the racketeering that was going on. Once a year, every Jewish male had to go to the temple. They had to pay a temple tax, uh, taxes. 
You know, it's getting close to April 15th, isn't it? <laughs> Something you've wished I wouldn't bring up, right? Well, it may be encouraged to us that they had to pay tax when we realize that taxation is really nothing new. But uh, there was no escape this. Every male Jew was required to pay a half-shekel tax at the Passover season. And furthermore, the uh, tax could not be paid in Roman or Greek coin, but it had to be paid in a special temple coin. Uh, so it was necessary to change the Roman and the Greek coins that were commonly employed into the, uh, the special uh, temple tax. And of course, that was okay, but money changers uh, were required for that, and having them available for the people, that's a matter of convenience. Uh, that seems like it would be okay, right? But what was wrong was that there was an exorbitant price that was extorted for making this exchange, and so that sometimes almost as much as half the value of the money being exchanged was paid to the money changers for their service. Temple was making enormous revenues for this practice. And so at the Passover season, sometimes as many as two million people would be in the city of Jerusalem. And you can imagine this tremendous racket going on. Uh, And of course, the sacrifices. That was also a matter here. It had to be an animal without blemish and without imperfection. Uh, if, for instance, that animal had a, was blind in one eye or if it had a tear in the skin, it would be rejected. And, of course, as we said last week, uh, people had to travel a long ways, and so they didn't want to bring animals that might get injured or uh, blemished uh, along the way. And they uh, brought, if they brought their animal on their own, they had to be examined very carefully by the priest, and most likely they would be rejected. And so the priest would always find something wrong with it if there wasn't anything wrong with it. But uh, that meant only the animals that could be offered would be the ones that were bought there at the temple. Again, they had quite a racket going on here. Uh, These animals, uh, of course, at the temple would already be approved by the priest. Again, a tremendously inflated price was demanded. In fact, uh, a bird could be bought outside the temple for equivalent of 15 cents in our money, but that same bird bought within the temple would be as much as $15 if we put it into our money. And so this was just extortion. So the Lord had a very good reason for being upset. Uh, And great was his anger. So great, it tells us he made a whip out of cords that held the animals together and it drove these extortioners out of the temple. Now, we should not diminish or minimize this anger or the severity which Jesus showed at this time. This is a different Jesus than many people imagine him to be. Oftentimes we think of him as being so loving and understanding, he just lets you get by with anything. You see uh, that seeing your evil, he puts his hand on your shoulder and says, well, now, now, that's okay. You, you, you try to do better next time, won't you? No. Many people think of Jesus that way. Many people think of God that way. They think, well, he's the old man upstairs. You know, he's just looking down at us in love. And he's, you know, if we make a mistake, uh, that's no big deal. But Jesus clearly shows us here in his response to all this that's taking place that he is concerned about this kind of thing. He drove them out of the temple. Now, I believe his anger was under control. It wasn't a raging, furious uh, anger, striking out. Uh, Sometimes it's pictured that way. 
But uh, uh, he, he did actually deprive, uh, not deprive anybody of anything. Uh, the animals, of course, were driven out. They were could be easily uh, collected again and, and so forth. And uh, uh, the money was poured out on the temple floor. It could be picked up again. Uh, he, I don't know that he opened the cages of the birds and let them loose. It was all put into order again. But, you know, he, he made his point, which was clearly do not turn this place, this place devoted to the worship of God and the cleansing of people into a flea market. He talks about the house of merchandise here. That's the term that John uses. A house of merchandise, it literally is the word emporium. If you look that word up, it's a place where people are concerned about making money. Maybe a quick buck. The temple, rather, was to be a place where human values were to be considered supreme. And so that brings us to where we left off. And the climax of his action comes in what the disciples learned from that. Uh, We're talking about some reactions to this. And what God's or Jesus' response was to those reactions. And those are the lessons we can learn um, if we uh, look at this cleansing and the tremendous effect he even had on disciples, the disciples' minds as they watched the Lord. So the first lesson is uh, seen from an immediate reaction. Look again at verse 17. John chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Can you imagine what the disciples might have felt? Now, I think I'm probably assuming a little bit here, but I would imagine uh, they would have been embarrassed. You know, what if uh, you're somebody, you know, you're somebody in authority just really got upset and really started throwing things and and, uh, turning things over? Uh, Those who know that person would probably say, hmm, boy. I don't know if I know this person or not, you know. I'm a little embarrassed by this. You know, they hadn't really been with him that long. They didn't really know him that that well. Uh, they had been attracted by his amazing things that he had said and the things he had done. They believed with all their hearts that he was the expected Messiah. They saw even deeper that there was a divine quality about him that reflected the very character of God himself. They had not worked out all the theological puzzles that might have been raised in their minds, but they were committed to following him. Yet the first thing he does was something that was most likely embarrassing. Imagine going in the temple where this practice was going on for decades. Without any real appeal to authority, he just took on himself this action of driving out the money changers, pouring out their money, driving out the animals, even driving out the people. The disciples, no doubt, were highly embarrassed, but they were probably also fearful of what the authorities would do because this had been a challenge to these authorities. They knew these self-righteous Pharisees would not let Jesus get away with this. And perhaps the disciples even felt a little anger at the Lord himself for being so unsocial, for being so uncooperative. And yet, knowing who he was, they might have felt reluctant to judge him. So they probably had some mixed feelings about this. But you know, as they watched, there came flashing into their minds the verse from the 69th Psalm. Verse 17 tells us that. 
It's clearly evident that even at this early date, the 69th Psalm was regarded as a messianic psalm. The psalm describes the suffering and the agony of the one who was to be the Messiah. And there came to their minds this one verse, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal of thine house has burned me up, has seized hold of me, has devoured me, has made me to act. And there came for the first time perhaps the quiet realization in these disciples' hearts of a divine refusal to put up with inward impurities. They began to understand that God does not compromise with evil. And I think that's something we need to realize It's a great paradox of our faith. Throughout this gospel of John, we'll see plainly how anyone can come to Christ. Anyone can come to Christ, no matter what their background, no matter how far they've gone wrong, no matter how much evil they've been involved in. Maybe they've been uh, involved in tremendous evil, murder and prostitution and swindlers and they're liars and they're perverts and they're drunkards and they're self-righteous pigs and bitter and hard-hearted critics and religious hypocrites. They're proud, self-sufficient snobs. Did I miss anything? No, God will take anyone. There's anyone can come to him. No matter what their background, no matter what your background today, you can come to Christ. Anyone who realizes there's something wrong in my life and there's something that has seized me, gripped me, and introduced evil and hurt and pain and heartache. Anyone who wants to come to Christ can be free from your sin. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone can come. But now the disciples understand perhaps maybe for the first time if you come be assured that jesus is not going to leave you the way you are he's not going to settle for clutter for compromise for extortion for a racket whatever may be defiling or corrupting the temple courts he may leave you alone for a while you know i think many young christians have misunderstood this because He brings us in in love and he deals with us in patience. And we think, well, he's going to let us get by with some things. Some of the comfortable but yet wrongful habits that we have built into our lives. But you know what? He's not going to let you get by forever. If we mistake the delay for acceptance, we are in for surprise. If we refuse to deal with what he puts his finger on in our lives, one day we're going to find him coming in, maybe with burning eyes and a whip in his hand, and we're going to find that the traffic, uh, our, that traffic in immorality is driven out, whether we like it or not. And I think that explains what happens to many Christians. They like the Pharisees, make their outward actions, they make themselves look good, but yet they've allowed sinful habits to dwell in their lives. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a bitter, unforgiving spirit. Maybe it's an evil, lustful habit. Maybe it's a private indulgence. Maybe it's a compromise you know, with expediency and business. 
and it's hidden. Well, we look good on Sunday morning. We fix up real good. We look nice on the outside. But inside, there's some problems. As surely as people do that, one day they will discover that their Lord has changed his attitude toward them. He is no longer going to be tolerant, understanding, and patient, and all the evil they thought was hidden is going to be exposed. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him whom we have to do. People who think they're successfully hiding what they're doing are suddenly revealed before everyone. That's what the disciples were learning here. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So that's their immediate reaction. And it's a lesson I think they, uh, they saw here and they could learn here. But the second lesson was from another rela- reaction. That's a delayed reaction. Look at verse 18 again with me. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. This is the delayed reaction. It's amazing how blind everyone was at first to the meaning of this event. The Jews expected the Messiah to give them certain signs. One of the signs the prophet Malachi prophesied was that the Messiah would suddenly come into his temple and purify the sons of Levi. Well, here... Lo and behold, the Messiah has just done that. They should have known what the scripture said, but they didn't recognize it, did they? Instead, they say to him, what sign do you have that you are the Messiah? I just gave you one. The Lord's answer, of course, was to give them the only sign that would have any meaning to them, the sign of his own resurrection. But even the disciples missed this and how blind they are. And they did not catch the meaning of his answer until after the resurrection, it tells us. And when the risen Lord had stood in their midst and they saw the prints of the nails in his hand and the wound in his side and realized incredibly, hey, he's alive again. And they talked it over among themselves. One of them probably said, you know, remember that day when he cleansed the temple and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. Hmm, I wonder if this is what he didn't mean. Now, we don't know what he meant then, but now we can see it, can't we? The real temple was not a building. It was his own body. And they learned that the bodies, that bodies are the temples of God. A building is merely a figure, a shadow. You know, across our nation, there are great churches and cathedrals, have been erected. Remember that one in Southern California, the Glass Cathedral? Remember that one? Cost over $15 million to build. You know, that was an amazing building. And there are others that are amazing too. And no doubt, many, many buildings across our nation have been built and, and, uh, big, and plaques have been put on them, erected to the glory of God. Huh, what's that all about? 
Now, we talked about what glory of God means this morning in our adult Sunday school class, but you know what the scriptures teach that God is not glorified in buildings? I'm thankful for the church building we have. You know, I'm thankful for what we have, but God is not glorified with these, the wood and the, and the uh, nails and the, everything that's in this, in this building. God is glorified in us. As we said earlier, uh, that we are to be the image bearers. Even the building in Jerusalem was not really the house of God. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he acknowledged the fact that said, Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. And we can take great pride in buildings. But that's not what God's, where God's glory is seen. God's glory is seen in individual lives. As we are to be his image bearers. Buildings have always been but pictures of the house of God. The real temples are our bodies, human beings, body, soul, and spirit. And this is where God has created a place where he can dwell. Uh, Paul taught this in the sixth chapter of, of 1 Corinthians. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? You do not have the right to run your life, to regulate your life, to make all the ultimate decisions as you, uh, uh, what to, you ought to be or where you ought to go. Paul goes on to say, for ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's where God is glorified, not in a building. John chapter four talks about uh, the story of Jesus' conversation with a woman at the well of Jacob, and she raises a question, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship? Of course, Jesus' answer was, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is where God is glorified. When I was a little boy, I remember sitting in church with my parents. Now, this picture is not me, but I'm sure it's what I looked like when I was sitting in church. But you know, my parents had to tell me, you know, when you're in church, you've got to behave yourself. Uh, you can't whisper, you can't talk, you can't make any noise, you can't crawl under the pews. Uh, you can't do anything like that. You've got to behave yourself in church. You know, later, as I grew up and matured, I realized that if that's true, a believer is never out of church, is he? He's always in the temple of the living God. The revelation the disciples learned was that the Lord of that temple cares about the inward clutter, the inward confusion, the inward immorality that may be there, and he will not make peace with it. This is taught by John himself later in this uh, epistle when he says of Jesus, as he is, so are we in the world. In 1 John four seventeen, Jesus was the temple of God, which if destroyed, God would raise it up in three days. And so we are temples of the living God. 
There is further significance to this in the fact that John puts this account right next to the uh, miracle, the first miracle of the turning of water uh, to wine. And the miracle says to us that when we obey God, he gives us something to do, something human, something ordinary, something commonplace, uh, something that human beings can do. We can fill jars of water, and when we draw from them, we'll discover that something has happened. It has become the full flavor, fragrance, effect, and zest. It has become the, the fruit of the vine. It's no longer water. Human ability put into God's hands, touched by his touch, will accomplish far greater things than we could ever do. But Jesus is saying the opposite here. Let human beings do their worst. Let them oppose God. Let them destroy the temple of God. Let them carry out their rebellion at the, uh, to the utmost. And when they have done everything they can, God will touch it and he'll change it. And it'll work. And he'll still accomplish his purpose. I think this is what the disciples were learning, the fear of God. The phrase is frequently found in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You need to understand that God to whom you have come, that loving, healing Lord with warm, accepting, and understanding eyes who touches you with forgiveness and cleanses you, is nevertheless unwilling to put up with sin. Oh, we thank God for his love for us. But he's not willing to put up with your sin. He will cleanse the temple, whether you like it or not. Hebrews tells us the Father loves us and he'll chasten us because we're his children. He'll chasten us out of his love and he'll begin to, we'll begin to be what he designed us to be. Now, sometimes people get upset for God's chastening. We feel, you know, we, he ought to settle for what he gets, you know. It's the best I can do. But no, he has his mind, in his mind a temple where he can be glorified, where, he can, where our deepest human desires will find satisfaction and fulfillment and requires cleansing. There's a third thing in a reaction that the Lord, uh, we see here, reaction to this. It's a false reaction. You know, as the disciples watched him doing the miracles and healing the sick and touching the, the lame and opening the eyes of the blind, which the other Gospels tell us occurred in this, his early ministry, and the disciples noticed that though many were believing in Jesus, as we see this in the last part of this chapter here, Many were believing in Jesus because he was a miracle worker. Jesus did not seem to commit himself to them. Now that was a strange thing uh, at this point. Many people will come to Christ. They'll ask him uh, to be their Lord, and yet it seems like they're not changed. There's no reality about their Christian living. You've known people like this, haven't you? Maybe you were one at one point. No change, no reality about Christian living. And you go on just living like you did before you supposedly got saved. And eventually you drift away and never come back. Why is that? Well, John explains it here. He says that because Jesus knows man, therefore he knew what a man and a woman is like. 
There's no manifestation of miraculous power. There's, it's not just divine omniscience. Rather, it's the fact that as perfect man, Jesus can read all the signs that telegraph what we really are. Uh, we are always indicating, maybe by the looks on our faces or the tones of our voice, the positions, the stances we take with our body, what we really are like inside. Now, none of us can read the signs adequately enough to see what's going on the inside of one another. But Jesus could. And therefore, he was never deceived. He was never fooled about anyone. And though they came to him and said they wanted to follow him, he could read their hearts and know whether it was real or not. I read a report about a survey organization some years ago that collected all the reports of conversions in the United States by some of the outstanding evangelistic ministries of our of our day or at that time, the total came out to 250 million people were converted. You know how many people there were in the United States at that time? 250 million. That means everybody's a Christian, right? You know? I've been in ministries, you know, I've been in a town, I've pastored in a town where everybody was a Christian. Yeah, right. That's what they said when you went and talked to them. Everybody said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Actually, there are 320 million people in the United States more recently now. But at the time of this survey, there were only 250 million Americans. So according to the organization's figures, everyone in the country was a Christian. But we know that's not true, don't we? The Lord knows it is not true. And he deals with realities. He sees through our facades and our illusions, and he sees deep into our lives. You know, it's clear in this account that many people involved in, in this temple uh, actions and so forth, the traffic there, were unaware that there was anything wrong with it. We've got people like that today. They're Christians, and they think, oh, everything's fine. There's nothing wrong with the way I live. Money changing was necessary. Animals were necessary. We've got to do this. But they could have done it outside the temple courts. It had been just as effective. And though the years and through the tradition, however, it all had crept inside the temple until people probably unaware with anything being wrong, but the Lord knew, and he refused to compromise with it. He refused to put up with it, and he forced the issue. So people saw what God saw when he looked at the temple. And this is what John wants us to remember. We're dealing with a God of reality, a God who cannot be fooled, a God who will always deal in loving forgiveness with anyone who does not defend his evil. And when we admit it, when we come asking to be cleansed and freed, he never turns us away. He never deals with us harshly. But when we come justifying our actions, excusing our actions, trying to fool others, we find Jesus refusing to commit himself to us. And so the disciples learned in this account some wonderful things about God. They learned to fear God. They learned to realize that though he is a God of mercy, he's also a God of majesty. And they looked at our Lord with different eyes as they walked away from this. They felt the full warmth of his acceptance, but they felt the thrust of his justice, his holiness. 
And that's what it is to be a disciple. If we're going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to realize he's not only loving, he's not only kind, but he's also holy and just. Let me ask you this morning, does your life need some cleansing? Now, I don't know your heart. You know your heart. Certainly God knows your heart this morning. Are you here today just to fulfill a religious obligation? You say, well, we're supposed to go to church on Sunday, so I'm here. Are you here just going through a religious ritual, or are you really here to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? Now, you may feel uh, fool other people. And you can even deceive yourself into thinking, I'm a good and godly person. But you cannot fool God. If there's sin in your life, you need to come to him in genuine faith and repentance. Confess it and forsake it. And I think that's the lesson we should learn from from the Lord Jesus cleansing the temple. Yes, there was an immediate reaction. There was a delayed reaction. But there was also a false reaction. And too many times people falsely react to what Jesus has done and fail to see that he is a God of holiness and justice and he will not compromise with our sin. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to open the word of God.